Now the newest member of the Honky Tonk Time Machine is the lead singer of one of my favorite groups that are going right now, the Desert City Ramblers. Brian McComas is our guest, who you may also remember had a couple of big hits himself in the early 2000s. Brian, welcome to the Honky Tonk Time Machine. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thank you, brother. It's good to be here and, and happy to do it. It's good to talk to you. Well, we're going to spend the show just getting to know you tonight, Brian. We're going to also hear stories behind the songs, both from your solo career and also with the Ramblers. But we'll start at the beginning. You were born in Maryland and grew up in Arkansas. So you're from pretty close by here, right? I did. Yes, sir. The Ozark Mountain. Uh, not too far away from you. Yeah. We, uh, my, we were a military family. Okay. My folks met at the Pentagon and, uh, you know, they were both, uh, up there in DC and then decided not to reenlist. I guess they knew the trouble that was on its way. Uh, you know, when they got pregnant with me, so <laughs> I, uh, I ended up in Arkansas after a small, uh, you know, stint in Georgia and then ended up going to school actually in Missouri after I got out of high school. So um, there you have it. Where'd you go to school in Missouri? What is now known as Missouri State. Oh, in Springfield. Yeah, I think it was Southwest Missouri State at the time. The Bears. I was a bear. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Uh, and back then, the, the Bears had a really good uh, ladies basketball team. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Uh, they were the talk of the town. Back in the day, went to the Final Four, all that kind of fun stuff. And so that that was always the big big thing on campus is to go to the Lady Bear games. They, they were sold out. You know, guys couldn't guys couldn't get people to show up, and, and the ladies were selling places out. So it was a lot of fun. So, did your family have roots in the Ozark Mountains then, or is that just kind of where they ended up? We had an uncle that moved from the Georgia area. My my roots uh, from my mom and dad's side are West Virginia and Georgia. Okay. And uh, we had an uncle from Georgia that moved to Arkansas. Uh, my dad uh, ended up being a CPA, and uh, there was somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody that was starting a, an accounting firm. And my dad got a job with that, and it just happened to be there in the Ozarks in northwest Arkansas. So what kind of musical influences do you take in from there? You know, when I talk to people from Arkansas, I've talked to Colin Ray and Tracy Lawrence recently, and they, they mm -hmm. kind of looked at, at that Texas sound. But you could also look down to Louisiana. You could look, uh, I mean, heck, the Ozark Mountains got a pretty good musical influence as well. So where did you kind of take your influence from musically? Well, it was a combination of places because I just love music in general. Uh, I loved all kinds. When when I was thinking about music growing up, literally did start with the old school stuff or the current stuff that my folks were listening to. My biggest musical influence was probably my dad's AM radio, uh, driving around with him and listening to music when both rock and pop and country, uh, all three of those were on the same uh, you know platform or genre channels, right? So uh, that was a big influence for me, listening to the Eagles and then turning around and hearing Led Zeppelin on the same station. Then you turn around and you'd hear Willie Nelson, right, or Kenny Rogers on those stations as well, um, you know, Waylon. So that was a big part of the influence is, is my dad's radio. As far as geographically, my biggest influence is probably Branson, Missouri. Yeah. Uh, we were just 40 minutes away, 45 minutes away, and so we would drive up and see all those variety shows. And I remember, uh, you know, thinking that, all those folks had it going on because they could make you laugh. They could make you cry. They could sing a song. They could be silly. They did it all within about a 90 minute period. And then they'd turn it over and bring another group of folks in and do it again, you know, three, four, five times a day. And that, as you know, back in those days, the variety shows, that was where it was at, whether it was, you know, Mac Davis's show or you know, Johnny Cash had a show, uh, those, those types of things where they would kind of include everything at once. Right. 
and you had to be all things if you wanted to entertain people. So I really grew up with that vibe and, and that mentality growing up. Have you ever gotten to play Branson? I have. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I did a, a, a couple of different stints there. I did one on my own where I went and played. Uh, and then myself and, and Brad Paisley, we were touring together. I was opening up for Brad. And we went and did uh, probably three, four nights in a row there uh, one time where, where we went and, and stayed in Branson for a while. And it was a lot of fun. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was there that you actually met Paul Overstreet, which was a huge jumping off point for you and kind of started your journey in the music business. Yeah, well, you're right. You heard that right. Uh, Paul was a hero of mine. Um, the songs that he had written uh, were big influences on me. Uh, you know, everything from uh, Same Old Me, Loving the Same Sweet You, you know, songs like that. Love Can Build a Bridge, Forever and Ever, Amen. Uh, you know, all the way to, you know, current hits that he's had, or at least more current. Stuff like She Thinks My Tractor's Sexy or Some Beach or mm-hmm. stuff like that. Paul's had tons of, of big hits, right? And because of that, I just loved uh, the way he wrote. And, and uh, he had a solo career as well. Uh, you know, an album called So In Love that was big. Uh, and then an album after that uh, with a song on it called, you know, uh, Daddy's Come Around and Mama's Way of Thinking, that type of stuff. And was, those were hits for him. So he had a great career as a songwriter first and then as an artist. And that's kind of how I wanted my career to look if I ever had the chance to have one. Is I was more interested in being a songwriter than I really was an artist. Well, I had hoped to see him live. I tried to send stuff to his publishing company and, and that kind of falls on deaf ears sometimes when you're a 15, 16 year old in Arkansas looking to send something to Nashville. But I caught him, uh, he and Reba were actually in Branson and I caught him walking to his bus and I handed him uh, at the time, you know, some of my music and, and he said, well, listen, I'm, I'm probably not going to listen to this, but I'll give it to a guy by the name of Keith. And he runs my publishing company for me. And if Keith likes it, he'll get back to you. And I thought, well, that's the last I've, I've heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> and about two weeks later, my phone rings and he said, Hey man, this is Keith. Paul gave me, you know, your music. I listened to it. I think it's good. Wow. And so that was kind of the beginning of, of me thinking, well, maybe I can do this. If one of my, you know, heroes publishing company thinks I'm okay at it. So fast forward, uh, you know, about gracious 10, 12 years, something like that. I've had my my first hit out on the radio, and I get a call from my label that says, "Hey, listen, uh, you know, you, you might want to clear your schedule next week. It, you know, somebody wants to write with you for your next album." And I was like, oh, "I'm pretty busy. I got to get back out on the road." And they said, "Well, it's Paul Overstreet." And I said, "You know what? I think I'll clear my schedule." <laughs> so uh, I got to I got to sit down with Paul, go out to his house, and hear all the stories that I wanted to hear about all the songs that I loved growing up and Paul and I, and I started writing together at that point and have become friends and, and, uh, you know, respectful of one another since. And, and so it turned out to be a huge blessing in my life where one of my heroes became one of my friends. And as you know, it didn't always work that way. Sometimes you meet your heroes and you're like, Oh boy, but that was not the case with Paul. It was uh, really great to write with him and he's a, a good dude and a talented guy. And, um, you know, I've been very blessed to be, uh, in, in some ways mentored by him along the way. What a talent he is, man. From all those songs that you mentioned that he wrote for the Judds, Randy Travis, Kenny Chesney, Blake Shelton, and I think you and I share a favorite song of his, and that's uh, When You Say Nothing At All that he wrote for Keith Whitley. I think it's my favorite country song. Yeah. I just I think the simplicity of, of what that song says and 
and how it says it is uh, beautiful and, and really smart uh, all at the same time. Uh, and so they did a great job with that song. They really did. And, and I don't, I mean, how can you have two better voices that make it a hit than Keith Whitley the first time around and Alison Krauss the second? Right. Um, and, and back in the day when I was touring, when we were doing our first or second Flats tour, there was a, a part of my show that we'd break down just me and an acoustic and, and play this song or this game called Sing It If You Know It. And I'd sing my favorite songs and the crowd, of course, would know them as well. And that was one that I would always do. When you say nothing at all is, is always a song I do. So I would call Paul and leave messages of the 20,000 people singing a song back to him on his message. Something I'm sure he never gets tired of. So what was next after Paul's publishing company heard your stuff and they liked it? Did you land a contract with them right away? You know, how, how did that work? Well, I moved to Nashville and had been uh, here for about six months uh, loading boxes into the back of an office depot uh, off a truck. <laughs> That's what I was doing for work. And uh, I, I didn't have enough money to drive to work and to music row on my off days because of gas. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I would walk from where I was living on Sterling Avenue in a place called Green Hills here in Nashville down to the, the whole uh, road, I guess, kind of winds from where I live down to music row. And so I, I went all the way down uh, by foot and back every day. Uh, and I walked down to a meeting one day with a guy by the name of Doug Howard, who's now the Dean of the school of music over at Belmont. And he was running Polygram at the time. He heard some of my songs. He gave me the publishing deal. And that was six months in. About six months after that, a guy by the name of Luke Lewis was running Mercury Records and had just released Shania. And uh, they were doing well. And he offered me a record deal. Uh, that record deal didn't work out. But uh, it led me to an opportunity to get my next one with what became my, my permanent record label for you know five to seven years there, which was with lyrics here to Walt Disney. So 2001, the first single comes out, Night Disappear With You, and then the next, I Can Never Love You Enough. You know, both are, are successful songs, you know, around top 40 on country radio. What was that time like? You know, you're, you're getting songs out on the radio and, and things are kind of looking your way here. Well, the the cool part about, you know, that that time period was everything was new. You only get to do things for the first time the first time. Um, you know, it's one of those things where I think as, as you move forward, you know, you look back and you're like, that was the, those are the best years because it was all new, right? New and exciting. I would bet. Exactly. So it was awesome. You know, uh, I, I have a couple of memories that are kind of standout memories. And the number one memory is night disappear with you is our first single. It's out on the radio and the whole vibe is positive. Right, we jumped nine spots on on the charts, and we are the fastest moving single on country radio. I think we're number thirty six at the time. And I go in to have a meeting about the tour we're setting up behind it, and everybody's got their TVs on, and, and the Twin Towers are smoking. Mm. And and we we are watching this all go down uh, as as the the whole process takes place and obviously all that tragedy is happening. So we pulled the single from the radio and uh, collectively the, the label got behind a single called stars and stripes and Eagles fly. Uh, that was an Aaron Tippin song, great song uh, and, and turned out to be, you know, a, a good healing song for the country and for country radio and country fans. 
but that was the end of my first single. My first wow. single was literally, uh, you know, killed with, with 9-11. And so uh, there were a lot more important things than music to be thought about and, and to be approached at that time. So we just kind of took a break, understood the, the temperature of the country, um, and, and, and moved on. Then we released I Could Never Love You Enough. And, and that song... It did okay in regions, but it was one of those things that didn't catch fire nationally. So we decided by that time, as you can imagine, this, this happens with artists, especially during 2001, we kind of went back to the drawing board. And when we did, that's when we went into the studio and, and recorded uh, You're In My Head, I think was the first song we recorded. We followed that up with 99.9% Sure, uh, and three or four other songs that went on the album we meshed those two projects together, and that really became my first release or project. It's crazy because I actually had Aaron on last summer, Aaron Tippin, and heard his story about, you know, Star Stripes and Eagle Fly. What I did not realize when I was talking to him is that your song was kind of a victim of that through no fault of his, yours, or even the labels. It was just something that, that kind of happened. Well, I don't, I don't want to ever call on a day like that, and I know you don't mean it this way either, but I don't look at it as a victim. I just look at the, the timing was what it was, and it, it, it went as far as it was supposed to go. Um, and definitely Aaron's song was supposed to come out and be part of uh, you know, the, the, the come-together vibe and attitude that our country needed at the time. Right. And process that we needed to go through as a country but yes we, we were the single that the the label was um concentrating on at the time and, and we were the i think again i think we jumped nine spots we we're the fastest moving single on the charts uh that week and it just yeah it, it it ended the single for sure and i think it, watching the label do what they did with aaron was pretty impressive because i think they took a song of his that was just a demo if i'm not mistaken yeah and they whipped that thing into shape in about three days and had it released and out to radio. And, of course, the, the rest is history, and, and it's a good part of our history. And I'm, it, it, it's tough to meet a nicer guy than Aaron Tippin. Uh, so I have nothing but respect and happiness for, for the fact that that happened. Yeah, he said he had had it and wasn't planning to do anything with it at that point. But then when yeah, that, sitting on a shelf. Yeah. It's literally sitting on a shelf. Yeah, and then I think he said – the world needed to hear that song and he just happened to have it, you know, sitting on the shelf. So uh, that, that's a, that's a very interesting story how that kind of overlaps right there with you and him. He's been, Aaron Tidman's been nothing but good to me. I've ridden on that man's bus plenty of times, different places. Uh, and, and he is, he's a solid dude. And I think that story, you know, the story of that song for Aaron really goes to show because again, I'm a writer first and a fan of writers. And, and so you really look at that and, Writers say it a bunch, but it really is the truth. Sometimes you hold the pen and, and bigger hands are writing a song. And sometimes you sit down and write a song for one reason, but bigger hands have you write it for another. And I think the whole time bigger hands knew that that song was going to be needed. And a, a song that Aaron probably thought would sit on the shelf for a while, there was a much bigger plan for it the whole time that not even he knew. Well, as you mentioned, 99.9% .9 sure would come there, I guess, 2003, right in that range. And, uh, you know, that's the song that kind of introduced the world to Brian McComas, it seemed like. You know, uh, it, it races up inside the top 10. One of the most catchy songs I think I've ever heard in my life. Thanks, man. We we have sang that song a bunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet so. <laughs> yeah, and, and people uh, still play it. And we couldn't be more thankful, you know, for the fact that, but it's still one of those recurring, you know, we call them recurrence in our business, but one of those songs that keeps getting played during the summertime. 
uh, it seems to always be a summertime uh, comeback around song. And so uh, we're thankful for it. You, you never, you know, you hear a lot of artists say, well, it's, yeah, I hate singing that song. It's, I've sang it so many times. And you can feel that way sometimes in a, as an artist, but I'm never not going to be thankful for a song that, that did so much for a career. Well, and that's why, you know, I wanted to be careful in, in talking to you about some of these older songs, because I know you're kind of doing something different now. You're with the Desert City Ramblers, so I know there's a lot of artists out there that don't want to talk about songs they did 15, 20 years ago, but if the fans love them. Of course, it gave me opportunities, and and I probably wouldn't be doing the Rambler stuff if I hadn't done that stuff. Right. So, uh, th- there are things that happen, you know, at, at one point in time that, that you might wonder why they happened or why they didn't. They always seem to lead, you know, to be the beginning or the end of something else, and I'm cool with that. Um, and, you know, listen, uh, I was excited. that The writers on that song were two buddies of mine, Greg, uh, you know, Greg Barnhill and Billy Austin, two great writers. Uh, Greg Barnhill co-wrote Walk Away Joe, which is one of my favorite songs ever. Oh, yeah. That's a great song. Um, you know, absolutely. And so they're, they're both good dudes and good writers, and um, the fact that they had success on that song, uh, made me happy for them as well, and and we all wrote the success of that, and um, and then my buddy Shane Miner co-wrote "You're in My Head," along with Jeffrey Steele, another friend of mine, and and so when when you get into uh, that song as well that we followed up '99 with, uh, it, it was a top twenty for us as well, and and kind of kept things going, and and uh, you know enabled us to go out and tour more, and some of the fans that that got to know that music then are fans that are, you know, there for the Ramblers now. And so I'm, I'm thankful for the lineage that's kind of brought us to where we're at. Two really good songs right there, back-to-back. Back. I was a senior in high school when those songs came out, so I was kind of at a very influential time in my life, and I just remember, you know, driving around, cranking it up. After You're In My Head, though, we didn't hear much about Brian McComas, at least on a national level. The commercial success kind of dipped after that for whatever reason. So what have you been doing between that time and then starting up the Ramblers? Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of time there. Um, and the, the thing I was doing more than anything is, is raising babies mm-hmm. and being a daddy. Um, I went through a divorce, and so I wanted to focus uh, heavily on being a dad and making sure I was there for my children. Um, and I had the, the blessing and opportunity to be present there and, and have the opportunity to uh, be involved in the business side of music, opened up a couple of production companies. Um, those production companies had some success. I opened up a, a private consulting company, which did okay, and had the opportunity to uh, talk to young people who were wanting to get involved in music. And it's, it's you know, that's one of the most rewarding things in the world to me. I've, I've got a big sports background and have coached football and, and uh, taught tennis before. And and so coaching and, and teaching is, is a big part of my heart, and music is as well. So when I get to combine the two, then that, that really turns my key. Uh, so I did a lot of that and was able to, you know, be blessed enough to make a living in, in those ways along the way. And then, of course, I played shows. Uh, the, the blessing about having hits that, that did as well as, as the, the ones that were out there uh, is that they stick around and, and folks like yourself remember them. And so you may not be doing 150 shows anymore, but you'll still go out and do 30, 45, 60 a year. And and that's uh, staying in touch and scratching that itch with the musical side of yourself. And, and so I was blessed enough to do that as well. Which leads me to your current endeavors. You're the lead singer of the Desert City Ramblers now. But, I mean, it had been, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 15 years since your last single came out to – then forming the Ramblers. How was this idea to start a band born, and how were you approached to do it? 
Well, I've always wanted to be in a band. I tried to start a band when I was a solo actor, and the label said, no way. <laughs> so, uh, I've always been a team concept guy. I like being uh, in a huddle as opposed to, you know, being by myself on the tee box. So, um, you know, the idea of being in a band was always attractive to me. Um, I had gone through a, a spot, a spell in life where um, I felt like I had gotten things personally kind of back in a good place. And I started writing songs that were similar to the songs that I'd written that got me my first publishing deal uh, with Polygram that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And those songs quickly became, um, you know, two, three, five, into 15, into 30. And I looked at them and thought, these are not solo act songs. These are songs for a band. So I asked around a little bit. One thing led to another. One person knew another who knew another who knew another. It became the Ramblers uh, because we knew that the songs themselves were going to be a combination of country and uh, what, what, what a lot of people would call California country, Southern rock, things like that. Uh, influences everything from Skinner to the Eagles to some of the other stuff that, you know, was such a big, you know, outlaw country, such a big influence on my life along the way. We knew that having all those songs together in one spot, uh, you know, would, would kind of create a little bit of a sound that might, uh, you know, appeal because it hadn't been around in a while. And it, it was our, our favorite kind of music. So we started making records <laughs> and those records became the Ramblers. Uh, a lot of the songs were written out in the desert, literally uh, sleeping in the back of my truck, pulled over on the side of the road, driving through the desert. Hmm. I, I joked with somebody the other day, I, I literally pulled up on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. <laughs> uh, while, while writing some of these songs um and and that you know became the, the vibe the theme the energy behind the ramblers and guys like bart walker uh who has been hank jr's guitar player yeah uh, for a while and, and guys like scotty bratcher he's got the scotty bratcher band uh, those guys are great uh they became part of the band and so what we had is all these guys that have done their own thing come together and do this thing together. And uh, I stand back on stage and I look around because our, our back line, Andy Smith and Karen Conley and Matt Salvo uh, playing keys, bass and drums for us as well with Bart and Scotty on either side of me playing guitar. I just turn around sometimes and I've got the best seat in the house because they literally are world-class players. They're great musicians. And we wanted that kind of band and didn't want anything less than that if we were going to go out. The irony is we haven't gotten to go out much. <laughs> We've right. been stuck at home like everybody else. But the few live shows that we've, we've been able to play since these songs have come out and since people have been so well-receiving of them, uh, you know, those shows have gone great and people have been able to see that I'm easily the weakest, weakest link in this band. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but you know, it, there's never a good time for a pandemic. For but especially for a band who's just starting out, that that's uh, that's pretty tough timing on you guys not getting to get out there and kind of show what you got. Yeah, man. You know, it it is what it is. It's it's like we talked about with the other stuff, right? There's a reason for something, and I believe that. I'm I'm a person of faith, and I've got faith that uh, bigger hands are in control of this. And that there's a plan for why we were sitting on the couch more than we were backstage this year. Um, but in the meantime, folks like yourselves have been supportive and, and gracious enough to get our music out there and allow people to hear it, which hopefully means, unlike a lot of bands, when they show up and play their first shows, 
in towns that they're new and people are kind of ho-hum. Hopefully we'll really have some people that know our music by the time we're able to get out and are invested in who we are as a band uh, and are on board with being part of Rambler Nation. And that'll give us the opportunity to interact all the more with the live audiences that we're going to be able to stand and, and play in front of. The reason we're supporting your music is that it adds to this, what I think is a pretty eclectic era of country music right now. Right now, if you listen to country radio, if you listen long enough, you're going to hear a little bit of everything as far as different styles. And I really like that. And I, I, I think your songs really add to that and, and bring that outlaw country or, or Southern rock uh, vibe to the radio. And I want to kind of talk about some of the songs a little bit because I plan on playing most of, if not all of your songs, if you don't mind. We don't mind that at all. <laughs> some of the ones that you may not have released the radio yet, but certainly some that I just love. I want to start with the song, We Get Down, which is actually my favorite song of yours. I love this song. T- tell me about that one a little bit. Well, Bud Brown is is my papa. He's my grandpa. Okay, I was wondering. <laughs> and he, uh, I-, I wanted to write a song with with his name in it. Okay. Um, and also that touched on maybe a little bit of his past. And so we... Uh, we got myself and, and Lewis Ray, my co-writer on that song. I kind of started that song and asked Lewis to hop in with me on it again out in the hotel room in Las Vegas, out in the desert where we were kind of talking and, and writing. And the idea was just, you know, where, where did the songs go that kind of made you feel like you were literally back out in the woods? Um, you know, like songs like Country Boy Can't Survive and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, you know, somebody that's great about doing songs like that's Blake. Blake Shelton does great songs like that, and he keeps that kind of stuff alive. But as a band, we kind of wanted to do something like that. So we wrote We Get Down, and we included kind of my, my family history in it a little bit. And uh, that enabled us to do something cool. And then the guitar stuff, we wanted it to be reminiscent of, like, Allman Brothers stuff and things like that and keep those influences alive that influenced us. And so we put that type of musical influence in it. And kind of combined all that gumbo of influence and end up getting We Get Down. I first heard it, uh, the intro in particular, I thought it was Marshall Tucker Band. I'm not going to lie. Like, I, I was like, man, that <laughs> <laughs> sounds it's, yeah, like you can tell that's the influence there. But I, and sounds like that's the vibe you were going for. So Yeah, we're not scared of that. We're not scared of taking our influences and, and paying a little bit of tribute to them in the way we approach a song. Uh, to me, my, my favorite bands, the greatest bands of all time have done that. Some of the best bands in the world are bands that really just wanted to be another band and were doing their best to you know, to try to pay tribute to them. And then by that, you get a little bit of that sound mixed with the, the thing that you bring to it, and it creates a new sound. And So we hope that's what we've done is create something new and fresh with a familiar hint to it. Old Buck Brown's got a recipe strong enough that'll get you there real quick. One of the best lyrics I've heard in a really, really long time. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the truth. Too. The truth. Let's get the Hillbilly Rolling Stone, which was, uh, to my knowledge, your first radio single, right? Yes, sir. It sure was. A really good song to come with. What's the story behind it? Well, I just, I love songs where, I mean, whether it's Cash, I've Been Everywhere, or, you know, stuff. I love songs that talk about the places you've been. I love songs that talk about experiences and, and the mindset that you kind of run into sometimes out on the road and see some crazy stuff out there, man. You know, so <laughs> being able to put it all down in a song and also kind of have it to be a, a self-declaration and identity of, of what we wanted to, to sound like or, or say, that was our goal with that song. 
Um, Mike Music was my co-writer on it. No joke, that's his real last name. <laughs> and and so we just got to talking about different things that had happened to us along the way, and uh, you know the idea that this is the truth. You know that in late night stage life's got me. You know this life ain't for everybody, but it's all I've ever known. And in late night stage life's got me. I'm the hillbilly Rolling Stone. And so that that mentality, and and then kind of throwing in some of the experiences along the way. Um, that's what made that song. And I think we got a pretty good melody on it too, because we, you know, we have, again, that mentality of almost that, that Southern rock influence mixed with some of our Seeger influences and stuff like that. Um, and Waylon and that kind of stuff. And you throw all that together and kind of have that song. And you guys probably, uh, were, were pretty happy on the end result of that. I mean, I think that climbed up to somewhere around top 25, at least on country radio, right? We got it to top 25, and for us, we're stoked about that because we realize we're not a mainstream kind of country act to some degree, right? And we're not a we're not one of those solo acts that kind of seems to be the acts that, that are doing real well right now. We're a new band that had an opportunity to break the top 30 and then jump into the top 25. We, we couldn't be more proud or, or happy about that. And, you know, of course, as you know, we've got, got another song out right now that seems like it's going to do the same thing and better. So we're... Uh, we're excited about the fact that we've been received. You know, we don't we don't get those numbers without guys like you playing us. Man. So we appreciate it. You keep putting out songs like this. We're going to keep playing them. And yeah, that leads me to coming home. It's the current single you've been hearing a lot here on K103. And I said earlier that we get down is my favorite song of yours, but coming home is right up there with it. Really gives you a Leonard Skinner vibe, I think. And I really mean it when I say this is one of the best songs we're playing right now. Well, it's interesting that that's me and Lewis Ray again. So you're a Lewis Ray fan. I guess uh, so. <laughs> yeah, he's, and, and he's an artist himself, you know. Lewis is one of those guys that uh, he'll come, he'll, he'll kind of sit in a room and, and be quiet for a second, and then he'll come with a line that you're like, yeah, that's what we've needed the last hour. Great job. <laughs> so, you know, the headspace that, that we had moving forward with coming home was, again, that same, it's that same hotel room. It must have been a good day, good couple of days there, where we wrote coming home, looking down out on the streets and thinking about all of the, the dreams that can get, dashed or built in the city of Las Vegas and how many people might have been maybe led astray looking for something that, that they didn't find or maybe something they shouldn't have been looking for to begin with. And the headspace that we had there kind of turned into a prodigal son song. But sometimes you just you get far enough away from your raisin that you look around you and you say, what am I doing? Um, I need to get back where I belong. And that really is where coming home started and, and what, what it was turned into when we sat there for a few hours in that room. After starting out with a top 25 hit in Hillbilly Rolling Stone, what are your goals for this one? Man, our goal with Hillbilly Rolling Stone was number one. You know, that's, uh, you, you play to win, and you play to get as high as you can up, up the ladder and, and up the chain, and so that's what we're doing. We want to get we want to get as high as we can up the chart if you're going to be on the chart. Now, we don't make music to be on charts. That That's not our headspace. We make music to try to create real, true thought and, and an opinion or feeling and put it into or against a melody and and influence and, and affect people the way music influences and affects us. That's our goal. But if you're going to be on the charts and if you get recognized and, and if you're blessed enough to play that, that part of the game, which we are and which y'all are a part of, heck, you want it to go as high as you can because the, the higher it goes, the more people that you do get to influence and yeah. do get to hear your music and that you get to connect with and uh, you know, overall, that's really what it's about is connecting with the listener and, 
and the fan and, and hoping that they identify with some of the feelings and emotions that made us write the songs in the first place. That's that sports background. If you're going to play the game, might as well win, right? Heck yeah, man. You want to be competitive and, and go out there and compete. And it's friendly competition. You know, I remember, you know, my first tour with Rascal Flatts, I was, um, you know, out on the road with him three or four shows. And I, I walked up, we'd hang out on, on the Flats bus afterwards. And I walked on the bus and, and, uh, and LaVox looked at me and he said, man, did you go out there and kick some ass tonight? And I said, I did my best. And, and he said, you better every single night. You better go out there and try to kick my ass because I go out there every single night and try to kick yours. And I, I, I just thought that just stuck with me. You know, Gary's a good dude and, and, you know, became a good friend. And we were friends. But let me tell you what, if we were out on the stage or we were on the basketball court in the afternoons before we went out and, and you know, played that night, it was on. There was, <laughs> there was no pulling any punches man everybody went after each other it's because if if you if you do what we do for a living or what anybody does for a living but definitely i know this within my own business you're competing you're out there trying to to put your best foot forward and reach as many people as you can and in doing it you got to keep yourself motivated and a friendly competition does that and that's your job as an opening act to fire that crowd up for the headliner and Rascal Flatts. So he's doing his job and making sure that fire's lit under you. So so they're ready for him. So I love that. Yeah, man. I, I would go out there every single night and try to load the bases for those guys. And, yeah. and as you know, uh, closing acts they can they can not always be the kindest to opening acts. I'm sure you've heard your stories. Sure. And I definitely have had my own. But with the Flats guys, what they would do is they would put. Uh, the ticket would usually say seven, seven thirty, and uh, what most people do. Heck, I'm guilty of this myself. You're like, well, that means the opener goes on at seven thirty. I'll show up at about eight thirty yep. when the headliner comes on, right? Well, they would always everywhere we went. It wouldn't always make the crowd happy, but they would hold me forty five minutes. The flats would not, not anybody else. They would say, wait, wait forty five minutes. We're going to give you the full sound of our system. And it's only good for us if you go out there and kill it because it gets them reared up and they had enough self-confidence. You know, they had plenty of hits. Uh, you know, it wasn't, it was, everybody was a team in that mentality, right? And so they would hold the curtain for literally 45 minutes later than they should. So when I walked out on stage, the house would be full. That, that's really good of them. I, it's kind of passed on, isn't it? Like uh, they were treated well early in their career. I haven't talked to them, but I talked to some of the people who helped them get their start and people helped them and, and they kind of help help the people that come along behind them. It's kind of a tradition, I guess. Absolutely. They went out with uh, Kix and Ronnie and uh, they treated them great, you know, and, and uh, they they made sure that they passed that on. Um, and so Kix and Ronnie, Toby treated them great. They were out with Reba. Brandon, uh, Reba's stepson at the time, Norval's son, he, he was our road manager. Okay. And so the, all of that incestuous connection, all of those acts uh, moved down and eventually benefited me. Yeah, I kind of got a little bit of a background on them from Shelly Wright, who came on the show, and, and she helped them get their start. Uh, I know I'm keeping you. You got time to talk about a few more songs with me? Happy to do it, man. Okay. I'm sorry we got to start late. Uh, I want to go to Red Moon next, which, so if I got a Marshall Tucker vibe from We Get Down, Red Moon kind of gave me a, a Charlie Daniels vibe. Well, you're right on that. I mean, Charlie is, is awesome, and, and uh, we, you know, miss him already. And the fact that, that he, uh, you know, did what he was able to do with the sound that he came out with and it's 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 kind of difficult to have a fiddle sometimes and turn it into a rock and roll act, right? 
Mm-hmm. And and Charlie found a way to do it because he was so gifted. Um, not just for stuff like Devil Went Down to Georgia or Still in Saigon or stuff like that, but just his other stuff that, that you know, you'd have to go to a Charlie show to, to appreciate or dig deeper uh, into a dive with him online, which folks should definitely do because we, we lost a good one in Charlie Daniels. But that song definitely was influenced uh, by that time period in music when Charlie was huge. Um, we just got through shooting a, a video for that, and... I should have brought this up a second ago. The, the same period of time, we shot a video for We Get Down. And we'll release those as well. Even though those may not necessarily be radio singles, we'll have videos shot awesome. and uh, produced and, and ready for people to be able to, to listen and, and see them and, and do a deeper dive on Rambler music. But uh, Red Men's real simple. It's just that story about that person that everybody knows about. That they, <laughs> you, if, you, if the poor guy comes in that doesn't know, you, you want to warn them. Um, and that's that's what the lyrics are based around. The music is really what that song's about. And Bart Walker will tell you that's his favorite song on the album. He loves the stops and the goes in it. And it's an enabler for him to really tear up the guitars. So uh, Red Moon's a fun song. The video will be out on that real soon. And we should mention, too, we already talked about Coming Home, but you just released the video for that, like, what, last week, right? Sure did. Yeah. Yes, sir. And, and it was one of those things where, uh, you know, our, there's, our videos don't get too crazy with storylines. So we're a live band. We play live music. We want people to be able to see the band playing the song live uh, so they can get warmed up and ready for when they're able to come out again and, and see us live. So that's what our videos are really all about. They're in, in different settings sometimes, but it's really just the band getting a chance to deliver the song. And that's what those videos are coming home as well as the other two we just mentioned. We're stoked for people to get a chance to see them. Well, that leads me into uh, me and my friends. Uh, another fun one to listen to. That just is what it is, man. You know, it's, it's the truth. Uh, there's of, of all the guys in the band, there's not many places or corners of uh, the United States soil that we haven't touched. And that being the case, uh, everywhere we go, it's our aim to have a good time and make sure everybody there had one. Me and my friends is is real simple. It's just that, you know, thicker than thieves and and making sure that uh, if we show up, you know, we've been there. (laughs) Make them remember you. Uh, And then how about Gypsy Angel? Yeah, man, Gypsy Angel, uh, there's an interesting story about that song is I had the the idea kind of rolling around in my head a few months before we were in the studio. And we had uh, recovered probably about two or three hours of time that we didn't think we were going to have because we thought another song was going to be longer or take us longer to do. That song was actually Hillbilly Rolling Stone. So we went to lunch, and I knew that we had a few hours coming back from lunch. So I wrote Gypsy Angel over lunch Hmm. and played it in the band. While we were, uh, you know, sitting there in the studio, they went and had lunch, and I sat out in the truck and kind of did my own thing and, and threw lyrics on literally onto a napkin. And then came back in, and the lyrics that I sang, the scratch lyrics that I sang, I think I changed one word. Uh, it's probably why some people think, well, that makes sense. The song's not well-written, Brian. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but it turned out to be exactly what we wanted it to be. I knew that we needed something a little bit more aggressive, uh, something that our guitar players could sink their teeth into, and something that audience members could you know, bob their head to a little bit. And so it, it's interestingly enough turned out to be a lot of people's favorite song uh, because it it's got a pretty aggressive approach to it. We don't we don't hold back on it, and it's got that almost a little bit of that bad company feel. 
yeah. you know, uh, to it. And, and I'm a, it's one of my favorite songs. I really dig Gypsy Angel, and we have a lot of fun playing it. And you're right on all these songs as far as needing a band to deliver them. You hear all these songs like, yeah, these are these are band songs right here. Yeah, I just, you know, again, I've been a solo act before, and uh, I enjoyed going out and playing as a solo act, but it sure is fun to be able to look over to either side and, and say these guys are in it with me. They're not just here for the night or here for the tour. They're here for the long haul. And um, that's that's what, you know, the idea of the Ramblers was supposed to be. I'm not saying I'll never do another solo project, and I'm, I'm sure hoping because I'm a fan of theirs that guys like Scotty and Bart do their own solo projects. As a matter of fact, I think they're on their way with some. Cool. But in the end, it really it, it makes a difference to me to be able to look over and see teammates and look around you and know that uh, you know, you're the motley crew that's rolling in and out of places and, and hopefully making an impact as a team. Um, that team mentality, like you said, that sports influence. I really does have a heavy influence on my head and heart. Well, Brian McComas is our guest in the Honky Tonk Time Machine. He's the lead singer of the Desert City Ramblers and has also had some major success as a solo act. And Brian, I got to say, your stories behind the songs and the stuff about all the artists that you've been fortunate enough to work with over the years has really been interesting to hear. But I wouldn't, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your time opening for the king of country music and George Strait. Man, I've got, I've got tons of, of stories of just, you know guys that I was out there running with or played with. I, and George has uh, always been super nice and, and kind and, and gracious when when you're sharing a stage with him. Uh, but he also, you know, the days that I was out with him, a lot of times he would spend a lot of time on the bus or uh, you know, riding bikes or something like that. And I had not seen George. Uh, kind of the same, same vibe as when I was out with Dwight. Uh, for a few shows, I had just hadn't seen him yet. I was on the on the tour with him, but I'd be off stage. I'd be in my bus by the time they got on theirs, and then my bus would head down the road. And I was on tour with him, but we weren't doing much hanging outside of that. Well, I the first time I ever shared a stage with George, um, you know, I I hadn't seen him. Second time I hadn't seen him. Third time I hadn't seen him, and I thought, well, I'm just going to go through the whole tour and not see him. And then I, I walk out. I think it was my fourth show and I look over to the side of the stage and there's George and he watched my whole show start to finish. And so I, I start to walk off stage and, and uh, I see him there and I'm, I'm thinking he'll probably just kind of duck out. And he's standing there and he said, Hey man, I, I heard it was good enough that I ought to come out and see. Wow. And he was obviously one of my heroes. So uh, I said, well, God, thanks. Thanks so much, George. I appreciate that. And uh, I said, I've been, I've been trying to get her manager to, you know, to get you to sign something for me. Will you sign this hat? And so I took the hat off my head and uh, I handed it to him and he signed it. And I've never worn it again. It's sitting in my closet. Wow. To this day, uh, you know, just because that was such a big deal to me. Um, I did the same thing with the Diamond Rio guys. Those guys were great. And uh, the first time I played with them, I took off my hat and I had them sign it. Uh, Shenandoah. Same mm-hmm. thing. Got a hat with all their signatures on it. And that's another reason I think that I really wanted to be part of the band is because when I was really getting heavily influenced by things, yeah, um, you know, there were some great solo acts out there. The Keith Whitley's and the Randy Travis's and, and all those people, they, they were making big impacts on me. But if you go back and you look at the bands in the 90s, man, they were great. 
the, you know, the Shenandoahs or the Confederate Railroads or the Alabamas, you know, were still rolling. Sawyer Brown, Diamond Rio. Uh, I could go on and on about uh, Little Texas. Just great, great bands. And, uh, you know, we've got some good bands now. Uh, that are out on the radio, but boy, in my opinion, that was just a golden age of great bands. It really was. And we've been fortunate to have some of them on. Um, you mentioned Shenandoah. They were one of our first guests. Marty Rabin, he probably, I didn't expect him to talk to me for that long. He talked to me for like an hour, about about as long as you're talking to me today, which I appreciate. Yeah. I mean, but he was he was one of the nicest guys I've ever talked to in my entire life, Marty Rabin from Shenandoah. Shenandoah is one of my favorite bands of all time, man. So, songs like I'm Just a Ghost in This House or mm-hmm. Get Me to the Church on Cumberland Road. Or, uh, you know, well, we talked about Allison, you know, he and, and her had a great duet, Shannon Dover and Allison Krauss. Um, but anyway, yeah, those guys were all good to me. And, and really, uh, they, they all were gracious, you know, that they, they just had a mentality that, hey, we're all fortunate to be here. And not, I'm not saying that acts today don't appreciate where they come from. I've met plenty that do. But those were the acts that taught me appreciate the acts that went before you appreciate where you came from appreciate those guys that went before you and did it because everybody that went before you made it a little bit easier for you to be here now well talking about getting back out on the road have you been able to do so have you been able to get out and do any type of shows since some of the restrictions have lifted a little bit we've not been out uh, to do anything in in public per se uh you know since this all started um, we've, we've tried to be as, as safe and as mindful and cautious as possible. Um, not that I have a problem with other people going out and doing stuff. It's just always in the scenarios that we were offered, it made more sense to, to be better safe than sorry. So uh, we've not been able to. And we played, uh, it's crazy, we were ramping up for a tour, uh, and we played four shows at the end of 2019 in California and Las Vegas. Uh, just getting buckled up and ready to go. Uh, and then, man, everything started. And ironically enough, Scotty and I got really sick back at, during that period of time. And this was December of 2019. And we were like, what is going on? We can't even breathe, right? Hmm. Uh, there's there's no doubt in my mind that we probably just, you know, we probably both had COVID. We looked at each other then and said, you know, it's probably that we just didn't know what it was. It hadn't hit our country yet. We were real sick, man. <laughs> so, so it took us a solid, you know, it took the holidays and then a solid another month for us to both get healthy again. And by then it was February and, you know, the, the kind of the smatterings of what's going on with all this had started. And, and as you know, then it steamrolled on us real quick. Anything on the books for 2021 yet? We do. We have, we have some things where people have, uh, have called and asked us if we're available. They, they are on the books as far as, and, and I'm not sure to be honest with you, which ones, uh, they've allowed us to come out and talk about which ones haven't. I think maybe they talked about one or two on our Facebook page. Uh, but I know a lot of the dates I'm seeing or hearing about are late July to early August when they would begin if, if you know, if they are able to go through. Okay. Okay. So still got a little while to wait before, uh, before you're back out on the road. I'm sure you're just chomping at the bit though, at this point, <laughs> man, we're, we're going to be so in shape for that fight. I mean, when the fight gets here, we won't know what to do with ourselves. <laughs> Brian McComas has been our guest. He's the lead singer of the desert city ramblers. Brian, I just got to say, you know, I love what you guys are doing. I, I hope, uh, I hope you're able to stay together. And, and I, I really hope you guys break through to be that mainstream act that we were talking about earlier, because I want more people to know, 
about uh, about about you guys and, and hear all your music because uh, I, I really love it. Very kind to say that, and you've been very gracious with your time. We appreciate you all playing our music. We appreciate the listeners being supportive, and uh, we'll do whatever we can to get to you all as soon as possible and, and be able to deliver some of this stuff live. But in, until then, everybody stay safe and healthy. Well, let us know if there's anything we can do for you moving forward. Do not hesitate to ask. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Right back at you, brother.